Hello. You are listening to Action Research Global Conversations. My name is Lania Rademacher, and I am the chair of the Action Research Special Interest Group of the American Educational Research Association for 2020 through 2022. In this podcast, we hope to feature those who are passionate about action research. We hope to include action researchers from around the globe. Thank you for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Patricia McGuire. Dr. Patricia McGuire is a professor emeritus of education and counseling from Western New Mexico University. For nearly 25 years, Patricia was chair of the WNMU Gallup Graduate Studies Center. Located in Gallup, New Mexico, a border town to the Navajo Nation and Zuni Pueblo, GGSC served one of the most culturally rich, linguistically diverse, yet economically poorest communities in the USA. Inspired by Bell Hooks and Paulo Freire, Pat believes the classroom is a space of radical possibilities. Patricia taught feminist-informed teacher action research to help educators focus inwardly on their identities and classroom practices, as well as outwardly on the social conditions that shape and inform their students' lives. Her book, Doing Participatory Research, A Feminist Approach, was one of the first feminist critiques of participatory research. She has developed a framework for feminist-informed teacher research and explored what happens for teachers who engage in action research with transformative intentions. On her life side, she's volunteered with asylum seekers on the U.S. Southwest border, marched and witnessed for social justice, worked with battered women, counseled high schoolers, led Girl Scout troops, and worked locally with a coalition to feed the hungry. Patricia's website contains most of her writings or links to where you can obtain them. And that link will be on the podcast website. Patricia, thank you for joining me this morning. I'm very excited to talk with you about action research, about participatory action research and all of the other terms, including feminist informed participatory action research. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to be here and have this conversation with you. Well, I think a lot of our reader or a lot of our listeners, excuse me, um, uh, that are in the action research SIG or connected to it in some way um, might be wondering how feminist participatory action research figures into their work. And so I want to back up a little bit and get your perspectives on all of those terms um, and I think um, from when I was teaching teachers, and you've taught teachers as well, uh, how do you work with teachers to help them um, realize uh, the nature of action research, the political nature of action research? I think in your book you wrote, um, participatory research assumes that there's a political nature to all we do. All of our work has implications for the distribution of power in society. And while I believe that's true, I struggled with helping teachers to understand that. Can you talk about that? Sure. I was involved for um, many years. Uh, there were a team of us at the Gallup Graduate Studies Center developing um, a teacher education program. It was a graduate program, a graduate teacher ed program for, uh, and we were trying to do it with a critical edge in the sense of helping teachers, pushing teachers to understand how their positions, their beliefs, their positionalities inform their work and to understand the power dynamics involved in the classroom and schooling. We worked in one of the poorest marginalized communities in the United States. And there was no way we could help teachers do the work they were doing without helping them look at the power dynamics of schooling, of schooling in their, neighbor, uh, in their uh, areas, because they were working with primarily native children uh, as well as many um, Latinx children. And so we were, we built a whole curriculum. I mean, it started from the very first introductory course 
where we use various readings in um, intercultural, multicultural um, work. So that throughout the whole program, there were themes. It wasn't just a course, but themes. The whole ethos of the program was to help teachers essentially consider themselves as scholar practitioners, as intellectuals with an ideas life, and that that ideas life was important. Um, we were working at a time when I think teachers were being de-skilled, dehumanized uh, by the whole enterprise of testing, that testing, you know, we, we there was almost more time spent on testing what we were doing than doing what we were testing. And so the, uh, the whole ethos of the program was to help teachers, push teachers, ourselves included, because we were, we were teachers in higher ed, to look at our own identities, our own positions, how that informed our work, and what that meant for daily work in the classroom. Um, and I could stop if you want, uh, but it, it was a whole- No, I think, I think that's right where I was going. I think um, a phrase that you hear a lot nowadays is check your privilege for people who assume perspectives of people that they're working with are the same as their own. And so how would that play out in this kind of framework? Um, we had readings, activities, discussions, um, materials, uh, group work aimed at, focused on helping teachers look at their identities and their students' identities and, and the intersection of those and what it meant for their daily work, um, looking at issues of class, at poverty, at culture. I mean, they were working in one of the most culturally diverse, culturally rich areas of, of North America. Um, and so they had to consider, well, what's happening for kids in their daily lives when they're trying to bridge the world of the Diné, the Navajo, and the sort of school world? How do those things come together? Um, yeah, I... Action research with feminist-informed action research, by the time we got to that in the second or third year of the program, because these were full-time teachers who were taking classes at night and on weekends, um, they were set up for this. It, it was something that went across the entire, at that point, I think it was a 36 hour graduate program and it went across in every class we taught. Yeah, I think about uh, years ago, I taught um, action research to, and it was at that time, it was a capstone course for a, a master's of arts and teaching program. And they had to do a small action research project. And I, I guided, but I didn't tell them what to do. I I'd really resisted that. And I had uh, uh, three people that worked together and they, they were very concerned about their students. They were all teachers in the classroom, but they were going to uh, do a project and they were very concerned about the lack of parent involvement at the school. Um, and the way they talked about it was these parents aren't involved. They don't come to meetings they just don't care and when as soon as they said they just don't care I thought I wonder how they know that and I and I I was I was struck and I found myself having a gut punch reaction to that but not wanting to tell them what to do I wanted them to discover it and so I helped them craft a project where they had participants who were the parents, who were the teachers, who were the administrators, define what parent involvement meant to them. And what they found out in this very diverse school that had multicultural uh, student backgrounds, which is very common in the Chicago area, is that these parents that they termed as not caring had a very different perspective on what parent involvement meant based upon their cultural mm -hmm. perceptions. And so to me, that is an exemplar of uh, the power that action research can have for, for not only uh, giving tools to the participants, but also uh, transforming the researcher. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, go ahead. Well, it, 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 we did something similar, the, the action research class, teacher action research class that I taught was a capstone course 
And we taught it over a year. We were able to, because, uh, and they produced action, teacher action research in their own settings. Sometimes they would work across settings, several teachers together. Sometimes they did projects with their students. It, it was diverse. Um, and by the time they got to that, they had done a lot of groundwork already in um, reading about, talking about, discovering, grappling with issues of power, um, their own positionality. So it wasn't new. And then in the uh, teacher action research class though, I did do a lot of work on feminisms because that was where I was coming from. And so we did more readings uh, interspersed with other materials uh, on feminisms. In, in fact, I would start out with somewhere in the couple of first weeks of the class with a short questionnaire trying to figure out we have to start where people are. Well, the question was, where were they? So I would had a short questionnaire about people's beliefs about exposures to feminisms. Um, so that would be a, a, like a beginning before we started doing mm -hmm. readings and discussions. And of course, a lot of the work comes from being, they were part of sort of a, a critical friends group where there was a lot of discussion. They kept their critical friends group as they went across the year. They read each other's work. They discussed things together that we brought back to the classroom. So everybody, male and female, regardless uh, or, or whatever their sexual identity was, uh, everybody was grappling with issues of gender, class, culture, race. I mean, the, the whole class was grappling with it. And I had developed by that time, um, I had done research earlier uh, on, uh, in fact, it was a, a sort of participatory process with action researchers around the world of how they thought feminisms informed their work, if at all, and how they thought feminisms uh, informed action research, if at all. And then from that work, I developed sort of a, I won't say a framework, but a series of, okay, here's the concepts from feminisms that could or seem to inform action research. And then from that, I developed a framework of, okay, you don't have to say you're a feminist, you know, because lots of, of teachers are, well, I'm not a feminist, but okay, you're not a feminist, but you love all the privileges and the things that feminists have gotten for us, fine. Um, so, but here's a framework of ways that you could look at your project and ask some questions about how is gendering, what is what are gendering mechanisms in your classroom look like? How is your gender and your beliefs about gender, gender uh, informing your project? Looking at voice, looking at, it, it was a series of, of questions that students could, at, teachers could ask about their work that would help them use a feminist informed framework to do teacher action research. So it yes. didn't require a person to say, yeah, I'm a feminist. Right. It required people to say, okay, what could this framework, what could this, how could this framework help me look at myself, my students, our school life, our community differently? Yes, and I, uh, I really, you sent me this morning your slideshow um, from a class, and I just, I asked you about the constructs of feminisms that feminist informed participatory action research is, is built on. Uh, and um, uh, that, that must have been a wonderful lecture. I wish I could have been in it. But the slideshow has all, all of these things that you've talked about. Gender, of course, is in there. But it's not only gender, you know, it's right. uh, everyday experience. I'm reading the slideshow. Everyday experience has legitimate source of knowledge. Um, and I think that's a strong one for me because I think everyday experience is often uh, not given credence in the public and definitely not by hard science. And I say hard science researchers to mean those researchers that grew up in a positivistic environment right, and right. primarily do quant with large data sets. Um, multiple identities, you talk about that positionality, webs, webs of oppression, reconceptualizing and challenging that power, looking at who has the voice and who has the silence, um, knowledge creation in the context of human relationships, not just knowledge creation, which I think in our society, we've 
centered in the academy. Uh, and I've tried to push against that, even though I am in the academy, I've tried to push against that for a long time. So that's really important. But all of these constructs, uh, I, I think um, I, I wrote down a question here. Is, is the intention what makes it feminist or is it the reflecting and acting on our own um, perceptions and um, I can't remember what I wrote. I wrote this a couple of days ago. So is it the intention to do these constructs or is it the act of reflecting on these constructs as we create and enact? I think it's both knowing and doing. I mean, it's not enough to know if you don't do, which is the value of any kind of action research. It's a cycle of learning from doing and then doing, building on what you learned. So to me, feminisms isn't only a theoretical construct. It's a way of being in the world, yes. Yes. as I think any the theory is. Um, and so if theory, all the theory in the world is no good if it doesn't inform your daily actions. Yes. And then you use your daily actions to relook at the theory and go, hmm, what about this theory? You know, yes. I mean, I think that's over time how I, I use the word feminisms with an S now because, or I have for quite some time, because feminisms isn't one monolithic theoretical entity. Um, and I think, you know, for a long time now, uh, feminisms is intersectional. I mean, looking at issues of gender, race, class, culture, one's place, nation's place in the international order, looking at all those things. So I think, like, to me, uh, the concern, one of the concerns I have about action research and teacher action research is that it not, sometimes it's promoted as some atheoretical set of techniques that someone would use in their classroom to improve X. Well, there's nothing wrong with improving X, but action research is not an atheoretical set of techniques. It comes out of a very deeply held belief about who has a right to create knowledge? What right. is knowledge? What do you do with it? Who has the right to benefit from it? And so I think that all action researchers really have to look and say, well, how do my own, how does my belief system, my set of values, the way I operate in the world, how does that inform my action research? Why am I doing this? Yes. It has to be self-reflexive first before it can challenge power constructs. I think, I think you have to challenge yourself. Um, uh, my writing partner and I were talking about this when we were writing our, our book and the whole book is infused with reflecting on your positionality. Right. In every setting, whether you're doing evaluation or action research, because we talk about both. Uh, and, and you have to reflect and critically reflect on your own work, purpose, intention before you can work with others to enact change that they want. Right. And, and then complex. there's some kind of a, it, it keeps going because it's not like you do this reflective work and okay, you're great. You're all fixed. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like uh, how we choose to eat in the world. You know, it's like, you, right. you know what's good for you, but then you get up at 2 a.m. and eat the ice cream. Um, it, it's sort of like this reflective work is constant. It's ongoing. Um, and it's that work, that thinking about, that um, reflecting upon power positions. And then as you engage with others, will you reconsider? Because you see new things about yourself. You see new things about other people. And you're never perfect. I mean, that's not going to happen. You make mistakes and you back up and you think, okay, I'm going to do that differently the next time. Right. Uh, when we talk about theory and we talk about uh, infusing theory into action research, sometimes I can say this from all the students that I've taught and a lot of doc students, theory is a word that makes um, novice researchers cringe, hide, you know, and I don't, I don't see it that way, um, but I, I'm quite a bit older than most of them and have been working 
with a theoretical stance from a long time. And currently, theory is in the news with uh, the challenges to the use of critical race theory in schools. Um, and and I, I'm again struck by that fear that I see in people. Um, but I don't know about you, but and, I, and I, I'm assuming and maybe incorrectly, but I, to me, that theory and many theories are about overlaying a perception, a view on action, on life. And critical theory is about questioning what's there. And so if we don't question what there, what's there and why it was created and why the policies or whatever was put in place, then we're just letting the status quo continue. And maybe the reason something was put in place was not a very good reason or it doesn't apply anymore. And so that's all I think it is, is, is critiquing, questioning. Can you talk about theory or talk about any of those things? I put a lot sure. of things in that. Sure. Um, Wendy Frisbee and, and Colleen Reed and I wrote an article years ago. Uh, I think we called it Reclaiming the F Word. And we were looking at the role of theory in participatory action research. And essentially, humans, we're, we're theory makers, we're theory builders. It's the way the brain works. We look at things and we try to find patterns because patterns help us make sense of the universe. You can't live without it. It's a survival tool. And whether we call ourselves theorists or not, we're all armchair theorists. We have friends who do something and we say, oh, well, they did it because, you know, we ascribe motivations, we ascribe becauses to people. That's theory. Building. That. You yes. know, that's just theory building. And it's like an education. Teachers have to have really, they have to have some theoretical stance on two key questions. How do people learn and how do I facilitate that learning? Well, that early on, teachers just want technical tools. Tell me how, tell me how to do it. I was at same place when I was in my first graduate program in counseling. It was like, give me the how-to book. Just tell me how to do it. Give me the, you know, the, the sort of how-to of it. And I ended up quitting the program because I realized, and I went back to it and finished, but I quit at a point because I thought, wow, I can no more facilitate people's growth and change through counseling if I don't have some theoretical stance about how do people grow and change? Therefore, how would I facilitate that process? So I think in any profession, just in our life, as either as you know, family members or as professionals, you have theories and actions and they work together. You create a framework that explains why do things happen? How do they happen? And if that's the case, how do we change them? And that's the, the role, I think, of critical theory and critical race theory is that it isn't just enough to have a belief set and an, an analysis of why things happen, but then you use that to change it. And that's the critical part. It's yes. like, you know, you, you don't just have theory to understand the world, you have theory to understand and therefore change the world. Yes. And that's right. what's so threatening about critical race theory and feminisms is that it's in part, it names the fact that structure, not just individual beliefs and biases and behavior, that there are socially constructed, human constructed, institutional, organizational structures, laws, et cetera, that keep these inequities in place. Yes. So you don't have to work with 5 billion plus people to change their beliefs. You have to work, which is important, but you also have to change the structures that keep these things in place. And that's what's, I believe, probably so threatening about this. Yes, I think you're right. It, um, it's worked, you know, the statement from the privileged side, it's worked for us for 20 years. Why do we want to change it? Well, right, because they get the benefits of it. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. And um, so, but I do have students um, who struggle with the theory part. I've got a couple who are using uh, CRT in their dissertation, so that, that will be a lot of fun. But um, I have one who just graduated who, uh, she struggled and struggled to find a theoretical framework for her dissertation. and. I gave a lot of ideas, but I stopped at choosing and saying, you must use this. 
And she went back to Maslow's hierarchy and she said, I keep thinking this is about, it was about teacher mentorship and, and uh, she just published, so I can talk about this now. Um, but she said, I keep coming back to this, that um, these teachers need all of these things, not in a pyramid form, but in a spatial, all of these things. And so she changed it. She changed Maslow's from her dissertation research and what came out of it. I was so proud of her. It was it was pretty incredible when when you realize that a theory is not a static thing. It's not a set in stone thing, but it's a fluid. This was the best information we had at the time to explain this human behavior. And when we have more information, we're going to morph that theory and change it and evolve it. And when there's a greater diversity of people in the theory building process, because then it's more it's a greater diversity of people's experience informing the theory. Or you look and you go, well, the theory works for these people, but not for these people. Right, right. I think it can be very, very powerful. I'm going to I want to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about feminist informed, which we have been talking about, but I want to talk about the issue of gender. So you talk a lot about uh, feminist-informed feminist research highlighting those issues of gender, which I know that's not the only thing we highlight. But talk about, in your, in your book, you talk so much about marginalized um, gender, primarily women, but you know we have a multitude of genders in our society today. And I have family members who identify somewhere on the spectrum of between male and female. And um, so when we talk about marginalization, what does that mean to you in terms of research, say, in a classroom? Uh, it, you, it's very easy to assume that it could be about uh, recognizing your students might not be male and female. That's probably the most shallow level. But take that a little bit deeper. Well, I think... It, it's a, it, it might be more challenging to talk about it in the abstract than connected to a concrete topic. Sure. Um, but, uh, and I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're asking. Um, well, I'm asking, I am asking for the concrete, what experiences right. have you had? And I think of things like not just it, not just talking about a student's gender, but talking about your own preconceived notions about the way boys will behave in the class and right. the way okay. girls I, will behave in the class. Right. You know? I can think of many, many examples that came from uh, the teachers I work with work. Um, teachers, male and female, began to, one of the things, when you look at how gendering mechanisms work in your classroom, who do you have do certain kinds of tasks? How do you um, praise students? What do you expect of them? As teachers start to look at that, then they get some sense of, oh, I, I praise the girls for, uh, or I might praise one set of students for hard work, but I praise the other set of students for actual accomplishments. Well, what does that mean? Um, looking at who you ask to do what kind of uh, contributions to the classroom, chores in the classroom, teachers looking at how what they how they intervene in either arguments or disagreements between students. I had male teachers begin to recognize or recognize how they use their own masculinity to sort of shut down certain things but let other things go. Um, it might have impact people looking at, for example, what kind of reading materials they had available and assumptions they made about what kids like to read that might not, uh, that, that might be based in data, but might not. Um, so I think that anything that a teacher is looking at in terms of his or, you know, wherever they are on the um, sexual orientation, um, gender identity spectrum, wherever teachers are looking at their um, their assumptions about students. Yes, and uh, how those play out. Yeah, I think it it involves challenging our own assumptions 
uh, both in what we're deciding to focus on in our research. And I'm thinking very simply as a teacher in a classroom um, who is trying to improve learning and the assumptions that you have about the children, about learning, about how they learn, about the curriculum, about the type of teaching that you do pedagogically, direct instruction, do we do project-based learning? All of those are based on assumptions that you have about learning that may or may not be based in um, past research or have evidence behind it, whether it's evidence of practice or evidence you know, that we consider to be uh, scientific evidence. I'm, I'm doing air quotes because right. I'm not quite sure what scientific evidence is all the time. Um, and so uh, I guess teaching teachers to be reflective, you know, as Sean wrote, the reflective teaching practice is just everything. And like you said, it's not a one and done. It's constant, constantly reflecting. Um, well, I, I, I did a lot of work with teachers on many of the various constructs that I thought um, were a part of feminist informed AR. And one of those being people looking at, how do I do my gender? How do I do it? What does that look like? Um, and for uh, men who were identified as, who identified themselves as male to look at, well, how do I do masculinity? What does that look like? How does it show itself? I had a, a thinking of a particular uh, male teacher. He was uh, that was identified that way, and he was just anti-feminist. He used the expression that you know feminists were the minions of Satan. Okay, that's all right. You can believe that. However, you teach students across a a, a, a range of gendered identities. So let's look at how you, as a male teacher, male identified are doing gender in your classroom. He was willing to look at that. And what he began to see was how much he talked over the girls, how much he talked over certain students, how little he expected of certain students. So he was able to, to take a piece of a concept from feminisms and look at that without having to say, I take on that whole theory. I take on that whole identity. Um, and for me, I felt, well, that's growth. That's that's sure. something new for him. That that's that's very reflective on your part because having been in in situations where you, um, I don't know, maybe you weren't, but I've been in situations with with students where I was appalled at what they were saying and thinking, but I could not say that and I could not show that. And so you're just trying any way you can to help them be reflective on what they're doing, whether they use that word or not. Um, right, so let's back up and look at that from other perspectives. And of course, when you're working with, you know, teachers and you have a, an ethos in the classroom where people respectfully agree, disagree, dialogue, um, other teachers take it on too. You, you don't have to yeah. take everything on, you know, students in the classroom, uh, teachers take it on with each other, particularly yeah. if you have a, a diverse student population. I like that you have reflexivity on this list twice as self-consciousness and then as making power explicit. And that's hard in the classroom. It's not hard in a school setting. There are power right. constructs, but we forget sometimes as teachers that we are in a position of power over those students. Oh, sure. Who gets a hall pass to go to the bathroom? You know, I mean, think about that. The, the teacher has incredible power just over whether you get to go void or not, you yes. know. Um, so, yes. And, and helping teachers look at how do I use my power in a way that helps students grow, that helps students learn, that helps students be safe and comfortable in the classroom. Um, and, and again, I just think that in the last, I'll say at least, I don't know, since the 90s, there has been an incredible counter pressure 
to, I think, dehumanize, disempower teachers themselves. Yes. You know, all these canned curriculums that essentially are like, well, we don't trust you to teach, so we're going to yes. give you this canned curriculum because heaven forbid we should trust you as a teacher intellectual, as a scholar practitioner. And so I think that's one of the things over time that teacher action research can do is help teachers gain their own sense of power and belief that they are intellectuals they have an ideas life those ideas count they can grow as intellectuals and be scholar practitioners that they can know about teaching that they don't only need experts to come in from outside the classroom to tell them how to do things Ooh, that's powerful uh you have a couple more uh bullets on this slide voice and difference honor many forms of action and new forms of representation. Explain that for our listeners, what you mean. Well, out of the participatory action research world and popular education, and I know you were just involved in, in doing quite a bit with popular education, you know, there's a lot of different ways be, besides the written linear word, uh, whether it's theater, art, photo voice, um, so in the work that I was doing with teachers, and, and of course, at the end of the, the year, you teachers would um, publish, so to speak, uh, their research paper on action research, but they also um, developed some form of representation of that knowledge. It could be poster boards, it could be brochures, it could be photo voice other representations of knowledge, as well as using other ways to gather knowledge, having students do community mapping. Uh, again, we did a lot with photo voice, um, drawing, that there are many ways to represent knowledge and to take that back to families and community members, um, because not everybody is going to read your um, long form of your paper. I mean, you know, even hundred <laughs> percent, even when NGOs and wh whoever do these annual reports, they often have the quote executive summary, which is a page or two. Here's what came out of this. Right. And so it's how do you sort of do an executive summary that it could be in a brochure, it could be, and of course, this is now you have blogs, you could do blogs, V blogs, you could do a podcast, we had students do radio shows, but there are many more tools available now, YouTube, things that my students were only just getting into, but there are lots of ways that you can use those tools to gather knowledge, as well as to then share that knowledge back with the, the community, with families, with the students. The students can produce it. You know, here's mm -hmm. what we all learn together in the classroom around this particular um, topic. It can be very powerful. I worked with a couple teachers that started the project started with me at my friend's house swimming in her pool and she knew that i was a professor and she was a teacher special ed teacher and she said honey i just i really kind of think i want to do an action research project and so i queried about what you know and she had these students that were really struggling well it turned into a a um a project with the classroom teacher that she did inclusion with and um at the end, you know, I knew they weren't going to write an article. They're not going to write an article for a journal. I said, why don't you present it to your staff meeting to the other teachers that what you did, because they were very excited about what came out of it. Right. And what happened was it snowballed from the staff meeting. Teachers in her school building got excited. They presented in the district. The district asked them to present at the regional uh, teachers professional development day and then they were asked to present at the state so what started with just oh, i don't really want to write an article i just want to make things better for my student ended up with this whole district adopting what they had done the curriculum that they had done with these students for the whole school they brought in um the creators of the curriculum to do to actually had it in their you know it's one of those those cases where the curriculum was in the closet and every teacher had access to it you can use it if you want but there'd been no training you know they didn't know how to use it it was just there to they were using it everybody was using it and i said you they kept saying to me 
and I was only in the school uh, one time. To, um, my friend invited me to come in to, um, you know, see her classroom, and they, this was before they started. I stayed way in the background, and the principal at the time didn't want me involved, um, and so I, I don't need to be involved. And so their work transformed their school, and I kept having to say to them, look at what you've all done by working together. And you, you've not only empowered yourselves, but look at the, the changes in the lives of these children. And that was the significant moment that writing an article would have been, meant nothing to them. But right. alternative forms of representation of this new knowledge was critical. Right. And it was very, I did actually write a couple books for a couple chapters for, um, oh, I, I can't remember her name, but she was, she, I think she's retired now. She was out at University of San Diego and she and another faculty wanted to collect stories of action research, which is another form of representation, not an academic article with, right, you know, right. typical. Uh, and so I just wrote some stories about what we learned about ourselves, um, you know, in doing these projects. And one of the chapters was about the three of us really reflecting on the fear that we had beginning this project, you know, and it all, it's all interwoven in there, the new forms of representation, honoring those forms of action, giving voice to the silent, the children who were helped were discarded and silent. And now there's so many ways that are non-linear, non-article, non-text. There's so many ways that students can, students and teachers together can share what they've learned from doing some kind of an action research project. And again, whether it's a, a podcast, whether it's a um, something on YouTube, whether it's a blog, whether it's a V blog, there's some, whether it's some kind of a presentation, they're um, you writing know, a letter to the city council or right. You know. There's just so many ways that um, that one can rep can share the knowledge that's learned that don't have to be just a, a, a typical academic article. And talk about the importance of knowledge sharing to knowledge democracy. We talk about knowledge democracy where we talk about creating knowledge is as shared, but knowledge democracy is also about getting the knowledge out to the people that you created. So talk about that, how important that is. Well, I, I think, you know, what good is knowing if it doesn't apply to doing? And the only way knowing applies to doing is if you learn from what, you know, a group has done. And I mean, that's the beauty right now of there are so many tools, I think, to share what, um, what teachers or other action researchers are learning. Um, and again, whether it's you know, radio shows, whether it's blogs, whether it's V blogs, whether it's something on YouTube, um, there are so many ways that um, people can share what what they've learned. Small pamphlets. Um, I don't know if that's going where. Uh, yeah, and I, I think um, the idea of knowledge democracy is uh, we almost have we almost have the other perspective now with the the advent of the internet and social media where there's too much knowledge and people don't know how to wade through the garbage, I'd like to say. I'm thinking in terms specifically of this pandemic and all of the, 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 theory, the conspiracy theories that are out there and how do you wade through all of that. I'm not making fun of those because if you don't know, you don't know. And so part of knowledge democracy is being transparent about how you created the knowledge. Right, um, where it came from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Um, so, uh, trying to think of what my other question was. I had another question um, related to what I sent you. Um, and we talked about most of these. You know, I think what, what advice would you give to? novice researchers now working in this world trying to be uh 
feminist used feminisms in their um, in their research, whether they're teachers or in organizations or in other countries. And oh, I think it would be multidimensional. Um, I would read widely. I would read deeply. I would try to um, have a, a critical friends group or a critical, you know, co-researchers, people that you on a regular basis discuss your topics with. Um, I think it's really powerful to have some kind of an ongoing, whether it's a support dyad or a support group, someone that on a regular basis you're discussing uh, your um, project with. Uh, I think that that's really helpful that action research is, is really not work to be done alone. It's work to be somehow done in community, whether that's even a dyad. Um, because that, so that's what I would say, read, read widely, read deeply, have someone that you, uh, a couple of critical friends, critical researchers, other people that you systematically discuss this with that, that push you. Um, I think those are some things I would, would suggest to people. Um, I think you also have to be patient and give yourself enough time. Um, mm. At when uh, over time, I had my action research class be over two semesters. It was like two two uh, credits, one because we're you know tied to this credit world. Be two credits one semester and one credit credit the next, and then I think there probably was a uh, like a practice teaching flipped one credit practice teaching with two credits of AR and vice versa, because it found that one of the things that people want to do is very prematurely identify their question. And sometimes it takes time in a systematic way of um, journaling your behavior, of journaling what you're looking at, of reading articles, of talking with your uh, critical friends to figure out that the thing you think you're looking at in the beginning may not be what you really look at at the end. And that if you think, like I would say to teachers, look, if you think you know this intervention is gonna work, and it, it's the thing to do, do it, just do it. If you're already convinced, just do it. If, but if you really wanna understand something different and, and you don't know, that's what you explore. Because if you really think you know something, do it, see what happens. Yeah. But it's in, the, it's in the gray areas, the things where you really don't know. And sometimes it takes a while to get there. Um, yes. and I would, we did an activity, we were probably, two, three, maybe good two months into the class, which we called question clinic. And we would get a number of students together that would bring their what they thought was their question based on essentially two months of journaling and then discussing those journals, reading other teacher action researchers work, reading other materials, um, looking at their own practice to see what did they want to improve or what their students thought needed improving in the classroom. Uh, because sometimes people worked alone, sometimes they worked with their students, sometimes they worked with co-teachers across schools. You know, it varied in terms of what uh, teachers were able to do in the setting they were in. I love that. I love the, the critical friends suggestion. I mean, we are, are always inundating our, our doc students with read, you have to read more, but the idea of discussing, um, and we talked about this on the, the the doctoral student podcast that I do with some friends that we don't always honor within ourselves the work of thinking, talking about things with other peers to get that critical feedback. And it's definitely part of it. It has to be part of it. Um, it's not just about writing. You don't just set a goal. I'm going to write five paragraphs today based on what there has to be something that goes into that writing although writing itself is thinking, but there also has to be thinking outside of the writing. And I just think that's great advice. And there has to be an honoring of teachers as intellectual workers. Yes. Um, and there, I believe in, you know, the last the struggle. Since the 90s, struggle. there's been a lot to mm -hmm. um, demean teachers, if you will, you know, canned curriculum, things they have to do. Uh, bringing in outsiders with their curriculum, curriculums they buy, 
things are supposed to do. If it's 11 o'clock, you should be doing this. Um, there has to be some development and honoring of teachers developing them, their intellectual life and themselves as intellectual workers. Yeah, and it, all the teachers that I know as good friends say that that is the most difficult thing for them because time runs out. Right. You right. know, with, with all of the things they have to document and, and all the paperwork and all of the curriculum du jour, I call it, that's the canned curriculums that will come in and out of fashion every year, there's a new one. And, um, you know, instead of giving teachers the time to really learn and, and internalize that new curriculum and learn how to use it and adapt it to each student who's a different person, not they're not all carbon copies of each other. Um, I think that that life at the end of the day is uh, exhaustion for many of them, but they that, still go back. That's the value of actually university courses and like I say our the program that I was involved in for 25 years was um, every one of them whether they were a teacher a counselor a school administrator those were mainly the areas that we had they were all full-time workers so our classes were at night and on weekends um, and yet there were still high expectations of students as intellectuals uh, but they learn so much with and from each other, but mm -hmm. it takes time across time. And there is a value in being part of a action research class or course where there's some built in activities, benchmarks, things that help you move along time. And, and that's why actually over within two years, we started doing our AR course over nine months instead of cramming it into you know three and a half or four months yeah. to give I used to have to teach it in 10 weeks. That was terrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This has been great. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm gonna stop that. <laughs>